0: I think if any of us waited for that inspiration to fill the sails, we might be waiting for a long time. I think life is a lot more like the doldrums, um, where there is no wind and there are no waves. There's no motion. You actually kind of create it by your habits.
1: Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Jen Pollock-Michelle is the author of several books and the lead editor of Imprint magazine. She hosts the Inglewood Review of Books podcast. She's also raising five kids, all while living in Canada. Her new book is A Habit Called Faith. I thought that would be a great fit for the Habit podcast, and I was not wrong about that. Jen Pollock-Michelle, thank you so much for being on the Habit podcast today.
0: I am really looking forward to chatting with you again.
1: And I'm excited about your new book that's coming out. Um, I guess uh, I'm going to try to release this about the same time that the book releases. A habit called faith. And I I, I got excited when I saw that title, of course, because I you know I'm, I'm interested in habit. Um, I've named my podcast the Habit Podcast. Um, to quote, you know, Funny Connor said, "I'm a full-time believer in writing habits," mm-hmm. and um, and so um, so let's talk about. Let's talk about habit because that's really what um, you know. Your book is about forming habits, or, or I guess maybe I shouldn't say. Maybe is that fair to say it's about forming habits, or is it rather a vehicle for forming a new habit?
0: I think it's about the idea. I mean. <laughs> Yes and yes, sort of, you know, I think it's about forming the habit of Bible reading, but it's also about thinking of faith as a habit. Um, I think a lot of times people think of faith as built by epiphanies, you know, those sort of mountaintop experiences. And sometimes we don't make the connection all the time between just regular practices and formation of faith. And we also don't think about the practices as a way into faith. So, I kind of got I, I got really interested in this idea that I just ran across in a book because I don't read, it's Pascal, but I can't say that I was actually reading the Pensee. I was I'm just sorry. reading somebody else who had read the Pensee. Uh-uh. And Pascal had said, you know, there are a lot of people who, they resolve all of their intellectual questions about faith. But they still don't have faith. It's not anything that's vital. They're sort of convinced on a rational level, but mm-hmm. they're not. They're not. They're. They're not practicing the life of faith. And he said, "You actually have to practice the motions of faith to kind of move your way into faith." And that felt really intriguing for me. I think, especially the context that I live in, I, I interact every day with people who don't really think that the faith life is possible for them. Uh Um, Maybe they don't have a lot of reference to it. Maybe they just sort of imagine that it's kind of this like emotional superpower that you have to sort of Uh see, you know, pull, see what's behind the clouds. And I think this idea of habit as a way into faith, Mm -hmm. not just as a way we practice faith, but the practices being actually a door into faith, can, is a really encouraging thing for some people.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting that you're talking about Pascal as the entree into that because I, I think of Pascal, you know, Pascal's wager as being the sort of intellectual, you know, thought experiment. Basically, um, the, uh, the what is it? The, the idea of the wager, Pascal's wager, that you know, if 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 you wager that God exists and He doesn't, you haven't lost anything. But if you wager that He doesn't and He does, you've you've really lost. You know, mm. I, that that's. I, I've always found that slightly distasteful, right? The, the <laughs> yeah. asking of wager, but but and I, it never occurred to me until I read it in your book that that mm. the the thrust of that is let's live this way and see what happens.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I had a really fun interview that I did. Some of the things that I include in the book are these faith stories, just the different Mm -hmm. ways that people come into the life of faith. And one of them is actually a bishop from South Carolina in the Anglican Church. Mm -hmm. And he, that's exactly, he just, he started to become intellectually convinced about the coherence of Christianity, not necessarily Uh the personal relevance of it, but the coherence of it. And then he just made sort of that wager, he, you know, he took that wager up and he said, I'm mm-hmm. going to sort of act as if God is real. Mm-hmm. I'm going to just make that my premise and sort of move yeah. into a way of being. And, um, and then God became very real to him. It was, it's uh-huh. sort of an, it's a cool story.
1: Yeah. I, I, I love that story. Um, well, on a related note, um, another thing you said in your book is that you, um, Knowledge is informed by what we expect to see. Mm-hmm. And so your challenge to the reader is, why don't you expect to see God for the mm-hmm. next 40 days? Um that sounds a little bit like some sort of relativism, right? Not, knowledge is informed by what you expect to see. And and so there, I've made an accusation. You're talking like a <laughs>
0: <word>. <laughs> You're a relativist. <laughs> yeah. Um is
1: if if that's not relativism, what is it? This idea that we that we that our knowledge is informed by what we expect to see, which, by the way, is just true, right? <laughs>
0: Yeah, I was going to say, you know, that's just a sort of borne out by research, you know, that we all kind of have these biases, these sort of ways, narrow ways in which we see the world or expect to see the world. And so, the world we expect to see is the world we actually see. Mm-hmm. And so, it takes a little bit of training. It takes a little bit of intention. And I would say deliberate practice to sort of see beyond what we expect to see. And I think that's true in the life of faith. Again, if you come from a really sort of naturalist perspective, Mm -hmm. you don't expect to see God. You don't expect to see anything that's sort of outside the laws of nature, the regularity of, you know, gravity. You expect to see things that are predictable Mm -hmm. and understandable. And so, I'm inviting readers into expecting to see something maybe beyond that. Mm -hmm. And it's a way of, um, it's actually entering the biblical landscape which um, subverts all of our expectations for what we think really you know the natural world again if you're a naturalist you expect to see you don't expect to see the red sea parting manna mm-hmm. falling from the sky yeah. you know the signs and wonders you know kind of idea that both deuteronomy and john which are the two books that i'm using in the book though that's a huge thread a motif in both of those
1: books mm-hmm. yeah uh, that that observation that we uh, we you know what we expect to see shapes uh What we see and shapes knowledge reminds me of something. I think it was Chesterton, but I've never been able to track it back down. He said that the materialist is like the the materialist who doesn't see any wonder in the world is like the policeman who's ordered everybody into the house into their houses after curfew and then writes in his notebook the streets are suspiciously quiet tonight.
0: (laughs) That's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. And you know we have to. Invite people into practices. I mean, this is again just a just a real interest for me because I live in a context where just faith is not the obvious choice. You Mm -hmm. know, I live in one of the world's most cosmopolitan cities, and I I would say just on average, the average Torontonian, you know, really doesn't have a lot of reference to Mm -hmm. faith. I mean, maybe you know, great grandma or grandma went to church. Um, but there, there's just a very different history here. There's a very different kind of cultural reference to Christianity. And so, inviting people into a practice mm-hmm. where they actually, they they change what they see. And I think that is what Bible reading can do for us. I think a lot of times we think of it as sort of informational. Yeah. Um, but if we think of it narratively, like as a, as a story that sort of shapes our expectation of the world that we have, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, the as soon as we enter into the landscape of scripture, we're in a totally different world than the one that we would normally expect to see if we only came from that kind of materialist naturalist perspective.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this, as I think, you know, is a podcast about writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's, I, I do want, without sort of turning, you know, your book into writing lessons, I'm, I'm interested to hear about your habits. Since this is a book about habit, what, tell me about your writing habits and and i'm especially interested for instance are there, are there ways that as a writer you go through the motions like your habits help you go through the motions even when you're not feeling it you're not feeling inspired or you're not feeling
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think if any of us waited for that kind of inspiration to fill the sails, you know, um, we might be waiting for a long time. I think life is a lot more like the doldrums, um, where oh, there is no wind and um, and there are no waves. There's no motion. You actually kind of create it by your habits, you know. So there's all kinds of ways that I create kind of wind. I guess. I mean, I think again, if you sort of take that like if we could wait for the wind or we could paddle
1: and Uh the habits
0: are are a little bit of the paddling. So I create writing assignments for myself all the time. You know, I do. Um, You know, I think about my monthly letter to readers as just a writing assignment. Um, And I think of um, I journal, I'm a regular journaler. I should say that I actually become much more of a journaler in the pandemic um, Mm -hmm. where Because I think writing is a careful paying attention. It is the disciplined habit of paying attention to a lot of different things. And just as a writer who is very interested in the spiritual life, I pay a lot of attention to what's going on inside of me. You know, as much as I try to pay attention to God and, you know, scripture and things that are going on outside of me. But I'm very interested in the intersection of those things. So, journaling… Journaling is a habit that is – it's a spiritual habit, and I also think it's a writing habit because it's – it is um, a way that I – like, just – it's actually a way that you get beyond spectating. I think as a writer, you have to – move beyond spectatorship. And I feel as if our world is just built on the habits of spectatorship. We, and to get beyond that, where you actually sort of um, move into even the habit of forming your own opinions, mm-hmm. um, of noting your own reactions, of sort of taking account of your own fears and worries and longings and desires, like all of that is super important. So I have a journal, like I'm doing regular examine every day. You know, I'm just asking myself literally the same questions every day and I'm writing. And I'm not just like thinking in my mind, I'm actually taking up a pen and paper. Pen and paper is a huge um, kind of foundation for most of the writing habits that I have. I try to get away from my computer, especially really early on, because I find that I just freeze up that I have all these kind of expectations that I bring with me that, you know, well, this better be good and this better be soon makes sense. And there's just Mm -hmm. a way that the computer only allows you to kind of draft and think in very kind of coherent, linear ways. And I, and I, I have to get beyond that. So there's, I keep messy notebooks. I actually keep Mm -hmm. a couple of different notebooks. I keep a, I keep a three ring binder which is where more of my journal is. Um I keep and you know other things that I sort of put in there but I'm I am definitely like a lined notebook paper fountain pen kind of person. I have oh, a yeah. moleskin. Do, do you do as well?
1: Uh I write I write with pen and paper and, okay. and it tends to be graph I like the moleskins with graph paper. Okay. Uh, for me I, and this is probably some sort of superstition on my part but it feels like when I'm Really producing and, and having to, you know, meet a deadline or whatever, it takes the same amount of time to write one page, whether that's like um, whether I have wide lines or narrow lines or the tiny lines of a graph paper, and so again, this is some sort of mental game I play with myself that, that the smaller the lines, the more I can produce because I have. it takes me you know, 45 minutes to write a page or whatever and I've written more if it's got smaller lines. And
0: oh, may may I love that. Mean, mean <laughs> anything.
1: Um, there,
0: there is that sense of having to trick yourself. You actually mm-hmm. have to take up habits that sort of maneuver around whatever your particular hangups are.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and you said fountain pen, you use a fountain pen?
0: I'm a fountain pen person, um, not for everything, but for my journal and for my moleskin. And then I've got another notebook. My moleskin is like, you know, just sort of that paying attention to a lot of different things. I heard this on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Here's that sermon I listened to. Somebody said this. It makes me wonder this. I have, Mm -hmm. oh, I'm formulating an argument here in my mind. Mm -hmm. Does this work? You know, it's a sort of a working out of ideas. But then I have another notebook that is not my fountain pen. It's Mm -hmm. just a, it's a spiral notebook and it's my throw the spaghetti on the wall. Like it can Mm -hmm. be super messy. I can tear out the pages. I can write in whatever pen I want. And it, and I need some sort of canvas for that. That's my kind of trick for getting around. Oh, you better think something really clever and it better be Mm -hmm. the first thing that you actually write down.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's interesting. Um, there was some, something you said maybe want to, to ask a second question, a follow-up question and that is, oh did, how much do you go back to these to these notebooks that you write?
0: That is a habit. I think I'm actually trying to cultivate more now. Mm-hmm. The problem is so I do you want to know I, I literally wrote like 300 pages like front and back, probably for the year of this pandemic, journaling. Uh-huh. Just really wanting to sort of keep a record of just just all kinds of things. It was sort of like my historical account of what uh-huh. was happening. Um, and I've scanned those now, and I put them in my computer, and I think, you know what? I don't think I'm going to go back to those a ton. I sort of mm-hmm. flipped back through, and then I drew out some things where I noticed themes. You know, mm-hmm. I'm really... I was, I was so, I have been, continue to be so um intrigued by the idea of the way we live in time. I mean that was just sort of all mm-hmm. the anxieties that I had I've had over the pandemic have been related to time. And mm-hmm. so I started to just like notice that and then yeah. just keep a separate list, you know. So mm-hmm. I don't I don't study it. I think the moleskin is a new thing for me which is a place where I hope to go a little bit more back to, back to more frequently. Mm-hmm. Um I've found that I Struggle sometimes to just create pitches. You know, I want to write an article, but then mm-hmm. I don't have I don't have it gathered well enough to kind of think about what have I been thinking about. So that's what I'm hoping to do a little bit more there. But I do think that there is a benefit to it, even if you don't go back to it.
1: Um, I do too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like you know when I write down little little ideas. Off, I don't do this as much. Like they used to write on scraps of paper and then lose them, but it almost felt like <laughs> yeah. they came back right when I needed them. It oh, was like I. I was casting the bread on the water. You know? <laughs> they would they would just turn so up. True. Right. It was
0: and books are that, that way too. You know, maybe you uh-huh. order a book, you yeah. buy it, and then you, you're you not as, I don't know, you don't need it exactly when mm-hmm. it comes and mm-hmm. you put it on your shelf. And then maybe you don't pick it up for another year. I have yeah. had that experience just recently with the book where I thought, oh, I'm really glad I have this book. I didn't really pay much attention to it when it actually arrived.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I know. I know the feeling. Um, And by the way, how do you, what's the relationship between the spiral notebook, right? Whatever you, you know, the spaghetti on the wall notebook and the moleskin.
0: So the spaghetti on the wall is, you know, it might be just um, a, a really messy sort of working out of an argument it could mm-hmm. it, it can actually go both ways so maybe the moleskin is I somebody made I read this essay and they were making this argument I'm not sure if I agree with that maybe then I go to the spaghetti on the wall notebook and I just make a list list of things like here's what here's how I take issue with what they said this sounds like I'm such a critic but I think writing is it's you're in conversation yes always with other oh. writers other books and you know, you're reacting to Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe. And the only thing that you really can see, if you just, there's nothing to write if you just agree with everything. Yeah. Right. Um, Right. So maybe the moleskin is sort of, Oh, I read this. This is the argument they formulated. Then the spiral notebook is how how am I interacting with that? Mm -hmm. And, and then maybe the next step is, is, maybe my laptop, you know, where yeah. it's, okay. I, I think I actually could sort of piece together something coherent, like a response mm-hmm. to that.
1: Yeah. So you've, you have mentioned already the idea of, of not being a spectator. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the way you talk about entering in a conversation with other writers, um, and, and I think it's important that readers think of themselves as being in conversation with the writers that they're, they're absolutely reading, right? Not, not just, even if you don't plan to write, um you know we're always in conversation um and I, I think that's you're kind of talking about the same thing right when, when you that's another way of saying the same thing not being a spectator is acknowledging that you are in dialogue with other thinkers is is that is that fair to say
0: yeah, that's absolutely fair to say and I think I'm coming so late to this habit I don't know it's really weird how you can get through like undergraduate school and graduate school and um, still not cultivate that habit. And I think there's part of it, um being honestly a woman. I mm-hmm. think makes me sometime, there's a formation that we have, especially as Christian women, where um and it's implicit, you know, it's tacit, and I mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know, I imbibed it in a way that I'm only now just kind of wrestling with. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that writing for me is just this practice of sort of saying, wait, I I could I can take up a little space in the world. I can have an opinion. Mm-hmm. I could and mm-hmm. and there's a lot of courage involved in that. There's humility too. I mean this is not just about, you know, well now I'm on the world stage and I get to proclaim my, you know, <laughs> wisdom to everyone. But it is it's just a it's a it's a deliberate entering into the conversation and that is a way that we're formed. There's a testing that happens as we sort of you know, articulate something, lend it to others' scrutiny, you know, enter into the conversation, have our thoughts and ideas challenged and Mm -hmm. changed. I think I've just realized that as a spectator, if you don't get into the game, like if you're just sitting on the bench, well, you're not developing your skills, you may not be failing. You may not be that guy who I, I've, our kids were watching a football game this past weekend and it was like somebody had fumbled. I think they, a punt, they were catching a punt. They fumbled. And of course the other team recovered and scored because they were mm-hmm. literally on like the third yard line. Um, and, you know, if you sit on the bench, you can avoid those humiliating moments. <laughs> yeah. It's so safe, yeah. but golly gee, like I think I'd rather just take a few tumbles and actually like, learn, learn and grow. And for yeah. me, that's what moving beyond kind of a spectator position
1: means. Yeah. You, you mentioned that being a woman has affected your, you know, willingness to step in mm-hmm. um, and, and your willingness to be a, you know, a producer or a non-spectator. Um, are you aware of ways in which your being a woman has affected the way people receive what you've written? Is, is that something you're conscious of or, or is it more on the production end?
0: That's a, that's a great question. I think I struggle. I think I, I'd be speculating honestly to really say um, I've been grateful for just the, you know, enthusiasm, you know, both for men and women for mm-hmm. my work, you know, on a, on a small scale. Yeah. Um, but I think sometimes people might have a hard time sort of situating me. Um, I think if you have a position, like I think this is what a lot of men enjoy, you know, enjoy institutional affiliation Mm
1: -hmm.
0: um, and women do too, but this is just something I don't have. I don't have institutional affiliation. I don't have a credentialing in, especially in theological education. So, you know, sometimes I think, I wonder, I guess, if other people wonder, well, what business does she have sort of writing on these things? Mm-hmm. And I've, I've tried to, over the last several years, just sort of like inhabit the role of the writer mm-hmm. um, because a writer is not an academic necessarily. And, mm-hmm. um, a writer can exist in a lot of different forms, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there are writers that are academics and scholars or writers that are cultural commentators. There are writers, I mean, this is a long tradition, actually. Mm -hmm. I was, just before we got on the podcast, you know, we have the testimonies of Perpetua and Felicita. What was her name? The servant. Anyways, I was just happy. I was thinking about these writings that exist from women from they're very, very old, you Mm -hmm. know, um, these, these testimonies, this witness bearing Uh that women have done for, um, millennia. And so I want to be able to try to inhabit that. I, but I don't know that I always feel, sometimes I feel as if I lack models, Mm -hmm. um, categories, I struggle Mm -hmm. to name it exactly.
1: Yeah. I have to say, I mean, when I've read your work, it has not occurred to me to uh, wonder or to judge your work based on any credentialing, right? I, I read Surprised by Paradox, yeah. um, which I thought was so great. And I, um, especially your distinction, uh, you know, between uh, mystery and paradox, I, I, that's, that has been, I, I mention that all the time, by the way, to people. And hopefully, I'm not misquoting you. Probably, <laughs> <laughs> you do talk about the difference between mystery and paradox. I do, right? I do, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you're embarrassing right. Embarrassing, if it turns out. <laughs> that's something. Um, and um, and there's something about the fact that again, it, it wasn't. It didn't occur to me to to. I need to look up and see if she's really you know been to seminary or whatever. What? It's like <laughs> this rings true. Mm. And and I, I love. I mean, you're as you say being a writer, being academic are two, that's two different things. I was an academic and then I had to sort of unlearn some of those things to be a to be the kind of writer I wanted to be. Isn't um, that interesting? And so um, for what that's worth, I mean, this is, you know, that that's not just me encouraging you. I mean, hopefully you find that encouraging, But but I think for other people listening to this podcast who don't have the academic credentials, well, if you're telling the truth, that's one of the great things about a, you know, a, a an article or a book being out in the world, it, it, it speaks for itself. And if it's, if it rings true, it rings true. And if it, you know, I've, I've read plenty of things by people with academic degrees that just were just poppycock right? <laughs> and, and didn't in any way, you know, make my life better and it might've helped them get tenure. I don't know, but it didn't mm-hmm. do anything for me mm-hmm. and it's hard to imagine it doing for any, anything for anybody else.
0: <laughs> you know?
1: So anyway, I just offer that up as a, an encouragement, and and you know, I happen to have a PhD, and it has it, it, it doesn't do me any good in terms of my my writing mm-hmm. world. You know, I mean, it's, my, that, I, it's
0: not is interesting? Maybe habits of of study or mm-hmm. yeah. or there's some like I think that is something really important for writers and something that I feel like i'm continuing to try to grow in is um like if you think of writing as a kind of witness bearing that we bring mm-hmm. into the world we bear witness of our lives we bear witness of reality as we as we see it but it to even just sort of return to an earlier thread in this conversation like we have to inform our witness bearing right mm-hmm. um i could I could, I would be limited if all I offered were the world as I see it and know it right now. I have to enter into the discipline of study that, that informs, you know, what I, what is there, but what I don't yet see.
1: Right. Thank you for that distinction because, you know, there's a, there's a difference between habits of study and academic credentialing. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, so. Um. Well, good. Um, I want to talk about... So, I, we haven't even talked about sort of really what the... Um, the 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 idea behind your new book is here uh-huh. are 40 days of, of readings that if you complete this, there's a good chance you will have formed some new habits and may have a new uh-huh. way of thinking about God and the Bible and, and these sorts of things. Um, and so... Um, uh, at one point, and you are quoting or paraphrasing a, a Canadian composer named Ian uh, Cousin, is it Cousin. is that how we say his yes. name? Yes, yep. Um, and, and he talks about the importance of finishing. And, and and that's one of the things you say in your introduction is, I just want you to, you know, dear reader, I want you to finish this 40 days of, you know, <laughs> of reading. Um, and, and so he, so this Ian Cousin talks about uh, the idea that the real lessons of making are often they come in the latter part of the, pro- of the mm-hmm. project, and so it's so important to finish for that purpose. And I just wanted to talk about that a little bit mm-hmm. um, in our waning minutes of our of our time together. Um, finishing. Um, um, why is that so important?
0: All the momentum, you know, usually of a project is at the beginning. You know you you haven't met any obstacles or any challenges, and so. Um, you know i i think i think i guess i could sort of use an example from this last year of how few books i finished i did a lot of starting and i didn't mm-hmm. finish a lot of things and i i just i don't know curiosity waned and i think I think there's an argument for saying, you know, if your curiosity wanes in the middle of a book, you know, put it down, you know, or mm-hmm. um, maybe you start a project, a writing project, and you realize, you know, this isn't actually going anywhere. All right. So there are arguments to be made for putting things down. I just think we always, we probably rationalize too early Mm -hmm. why we should put something down. And, you know, so I can give an example of a book I just read, and I can certainly talk about what it's like to write a book, but a book I just read, Leslie Jameson's The Recovering like mm-hmm. 500 pages on her, her move, um, movement into sobriety. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's too long truthfully. And I, I, read some reviews after I read it and the, you know, other reviewers were saying this was, this was too long. Um, but there was a lot of beautiful stuff at the end of the book that I would have totally missed. And I would have mm-hmm. really missed how she was putting the whole thing together yeah. if I had only read the beginning or if I'd sort of left off in the middle. So you just can't appreciate the arc of something the scope of something the structure of something until mm-hmm. you get to the end mm-hmm. and i think that happens in book writing too i think there's a lot of discovery that we happen that happens along the way and and the epiphany sometimes honestly even as a writer writing the book you you get to the end and you now you've you've arrived but you see the map and the, yeah. there's a lot of epiphany that can happen there and so it is a, it's this tension of when because i think there are real times where we can put things down but i think cultivating the habit of just sticking with something too sometimes maybe it's not even that the project itself survives you know maybe you get mm-hmm. to you finish it and you mm-hmm. realize actually this still isn't that great But what did you learn along the way? What did the process teach you? What um, new thing can you bring into the next project? And one of the things that I'm trying to do now is actually just to record more observations in finishing. So, um, noting kind of what I learned through the process of doing something, or what obstacles Mm. did I meet along the way? What and until you get to that finish line, you can't actually even draw those conclusions, yeah. but those conclusions are what can help you for the next project.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sarah Groves talks about um, when, every time she makes a record, she um, she hits a point where she feels like, you know, this is going to be a disaster. I can't, what, what was I thinking? <laughs> I can't go on. And she calls her, you know, she calls her mother and her mother every time says, you know, you call me every time. <laughs> You know, and we had this conversation. So just a reminder that we had this conversation, you know, for all your previous records, and they were beautiful. And so, you know, and, and that's the sort of thing that you don't know until you push through it. Yeah, you
0: know. that's right. And if you start to notice some of your patterns, you can actually talk yourself down off the ledge. Yeah, like, right. like. I always get to this point in the project where it feels like nothing's making sense. I mean, that for me happens a lot. I start into something with a very clear idea and then Mm -hmm. it gets more muddled the further I get into it. Yeah. Yeah. And then what do you do? Like, Then you're faced with the muddle and the lack of clarity and that's where you want to put it down. And if you can yeah. just get to the point where you say, well, this always happens, this yeah. all, and what do I do when this happens? Yeah. Oh yeah. Maybe I go back to, for me, a lot of times it's going back to the outline uh-huh. and actually sort of like, you think of an outline often as something that you begin with, but it, it's something that I actually sort of revise a little bit along the way because oh,
1: absolutely.
0: I need to just return to it. I yeah. need that sort of scaffolding.
1: And that yeah, and that muddle happens because you now understand some things you didn't understand before. that's right. I mean, it's when you don't really when you just barely know what you're talking about, things can be pretty clear, yes <laughs> you know? that's and, then you, right. and then you get you learn more and you're thinking, I don't know what I'm and it's it's true. it's that's not just a that's not just a an optical illusion. you really you really do understand you know you really are muddled, and then yes, and then if you push through, it's a little less less muddled mm-hmm. uh, and you know. I was talking about this with Lisa Dean yesterday. She's she's gonna be on the episode the week before your episode. Oh, great. And we were talking about this idea that when you when you wade in, you don't, you don't know where your argument is going. And whatever that argument was at the beginning, um probably isn't the best argument you've got.
0: That's right. I mean, you actually it's sort of like it's it is an argument for actually changing your mind. You know, a lot yeah. of times we are afraid to do that. We're afraid to challenge what we think we know about the world. We think that assertion is like the most, the big, the the most honorable of virtues, you know, but to assert something and then to realize that you were wrong about it, that you were misinformed about some things that you neglected this whole, that your knowledge of something was totally partial, Mm -hmm. um, Of course, you should you should revise and resee and rethink. Yeah, Yeah. Um, it's just scary to do that because then you realize this is actually going to be way more work than I thought it was going to (laughs) be when I set out. (laughs) Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, All right, one more thing I want to ask you about before we so this is the penultimate question. Uh, We'll have the last question here in a minute, and you know what that is. Um, But we, um, I want to know. So you know, in in your talk of habits, um, you know, so often we we think of habit as being something that's rote, automatic. I don't have to think about, which is you know in some ways true. Where is the place of joy in the habits that you're that you're mm. talking about?
0: I think you know, habit is a way into joy. I think that we again we have this idea that like joy will come about spontaneously. We mm-hmm. think that if we live our lives extemporaneously, that somehow we're just going to arrive at the things that we derive the most joy from. But instead of thinking of joy is actually something that you practice. Mm-hmm. Um, habit is the is the hinge of the heart is what James mm-hmm. K. how James K A Smith puts it, and and I think that. I think often we start with desire, you know, we want a certain thing. We want to cultivate, you know, I want to be a better writer. I want to be a better mother. I want to be a better friend. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. we just start there, but what is going to carry you from intention into the actual joy that you, you already have identified would be mm-hmm. true. I mean, we, we want the things that will ultimately bring us joy um, and habits are what carry you there, yeah. you know, and um. I I had a friend actually who sent me a poem recently a collection that I had recommended to her Anne Porter's uh, living things. And she sent me a poem and it's about this Polish woman, Stella Rapowski or something. I don't remember her name and how she just does the same thing every morning. And her every morning is a faithful copy of the Mm -hmm. one that came before is the idea. And she's a little sister of the sun, I think is the image. And so my, my friend sent this to me. And I thought, oh my gosh. And she said, this just reminds me of you. And I thought, she must think I have the most boring life ever, (laughs) you know, (laughs) because I am kind of habituated to certain things. I do practice a lot of rhythms and routines, but you know what? I do those intentionally as uh, connected to the places where I think will bring me the most joy. Mm. I'm not practicing things that I think are going to make my life worse. (laughs) I'm practicing things that, That might feel hard in the moment, but I think on the other side, they actually have flourishing in real life to offer Mm -hmm. to me.
1: Yeah, great. All right, last question. Who are the writers? I know you've answered this before when you were on this podcast last year or the year before, whenever that was. But who are the writers who make you want to write? Maybe maybe this has changed since last time we...
0: I know. I was trying to remember who I had said last time. Well, I've recently been reading and talking about Jasmine Holmes' book, Mother to Son, on Instagram. And what a powerful book we actually interviewed. I interviewed her yesterday and I said, you know, how did you how do you have so much courage as you write? I really admire writers with courage who don't seem like they're trying to placate all the kind of constituencies of opposition. And, you know, she's talking about black, you know, being a black um, woman. And there are a lot of constituencies that, you know, have differing opinions. And so she is very courageous and unequivocal in that book um, and I think very nuanced, you know, uh, I think she actually maintains a lot of paradox in that book. Um, so that is a book it recently that I've just been thinking, oh, I could really learn a lot, um, mm-hmm. from Jasmine, you know, Karen Stiller, um, did you have her on the podcast? I can't mm-hmm. remember if, um, no. she is a Canadian writer and she has a wonderful memoir called the minister's wife and
1: oh yeah,
0: it is, has such a powerful voice in the memoir. Um, It's just very, um, it's, it's unadorned, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just, just kind of the nakedness of the human voice without pretension, without apology, without, again, sort of placating, you know, the crowd to think a certain kind of way about Mm -hmm. the narrator. Um, I, Really enjoyed that memoir. And I'd been thinking about a memoir project myself. And I thought I'm gonna definitely go back to Karen's mm. um uh to Karen's book. And then um Mark Buchanan is actually another Canadian mm. writer, and I have not read a lot of his things, but I was recently at an event where we were both talking to writers and yeah. I loved his approach. You know, I was kind of talking about writing the things that you know, which we know is kind of one of those big rules. Don't write about the things you don't yeah. know. And he said, well, I, I actually write about the things I want to know about, you know, I, I follow my own curiosities as I write. Yeah. And, um, and he, I think is a very lyrical um, writer in the spiritual formation genre. And I just recently got his book well, after that event, I bought his book, God Walk. Um, so I'm really excited oh. to to read that. And then, you know, Court, I'll just leave you with those three.
1: Yeah, those are great. Um, I want. To, and um, did Mark did Mark Buchanan write a book called The Rest of God? Yes, he, he did. Mm-hmm. I love that book. Yes, yeah, that's a great. That's a great book. Okay, well, um, I uh, I guess we're done here. Uh, we're not, well, we're not really done. We're just sort of out of time. I, I could, we could talk for a long time, yeah. um, but thank you, Jen. And um, I hope a lot of people read and benefit from, um, from your, your new book, A uh, Habit Called Faith.
0: Well, thanks so much, Jonathan. it's always a pleasure to talk to you and to listen to the other conversations you host.
1: This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com. The Habit membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.